If you're a professional writer, how do you decide which style and genre to pursue to make a living from it? Also, how do you develop your story when faced with just a blank piece of paper and a few ideas? Let's find out. Welcome to Half Hour Mentor. My name is Ian Cleverdon and welcome to my audio podcast series designed to help anyone who's looking for inspiration to develop their creative skills, whether professionally or as a hobbyist. In this series, we focus on various aspects of the creative arts. I'll be interviewing musicians, authors, songwriters and actors, and also speaking to some in the directing and strategic management fields of this wide range in industry. All of my guests have been carefully chosen, as each one of them has an interesting backstory from which we can all learn. If you're new to the series, please follow it on whichever streaming platform you use, and go back and have a listen to the rich archive of over 30 interviews and compilations. This episode is the second of two episodes featuring my interview with best-selling author Paul Finch. If you missed the previous episode, I'd highly recommend pausing this one right now and going back to listen to Paul's fascinating backstory. It'll help you to put all of today's fabulous advice and guidance into a much clearer context. As you'll appreciate after listening to the two episodes, I just couldn't edit our conversation down into one 30-minute episode. Paul is an ex-policeman and journalist turned best-selling author. As we learnt in the last episode, he first cut his literary teeth penning episodes of the TV series The Bill and has written extensively for horror and fantasy, including for Doctor Who. He is also known for his crime novels or urban thrillers as he likes them to be known, of which there are 12 to date, including the Heckenberg and Claiborne series. Most recently, he's launched a historical novel called Usurper. It's based in England around 1066. We'll hear all about his writing approach shortly. This series is completely independent and ad-free, so if you like what you hear and you'd like to help to cover some of the production costs, including custard creams and hobnobs, then please feel free to donate what you can via the Corona Sound website. A link can be found in the show notes. Let's move on to your current career of writing then. So we talked about the Heck book uh, in the, the previous part. Was that the first book that you wrote? Um, I mentioned the TV shows The Shield and The Wire. And in some ways, they were... I will get on to how I'm answering the question. They were a little bit of throwbacks to the Swedish. Basically, it showed the police being no better than they had to be, um, meeting criminals on their almost on their own terms. Mm-hmm. And this was very much my experience of the police. In a town like Salford in the 80s, we had to be the toughest gang in town. There was no other way. Mm. We had to be the toughest gang in town. And... So all kinds of things would be... I mean, I'm not talking about you walked around battering people with clubs, you know, like Mm. you see in some countries, but you had to be clever. Mm. I didn't want to do a sort of straight bat, by the book, bulldog drumming type copper. Mm -hmm. I wanted someone who was flawed, who was struggling with... I didn't want him just to be another drunk, because we've got those, a ten a penny. But I gave him a lot of baggage in his personal life. Mm -hmm. And I wanted him to be up against some truly heinous villains... And often, and I also wanted to spice it up with a little bit of unrequited love, a little bit of failed romance, mm-hmm. um, which has got me a huge number of female followers for the series over the years. And I, I make no, I make no apologies for saying that. The last numbers of texts and tweets and emails and, uh, and uh, PMs I get about Heck tend to be about that, and they're mostly from female readers. So really, um, oh, right. I mean, some of the guys do as well. It seems to be very, very popular mm-hmm. with. Female readers. So, 
and this is quite funny. I can't remember whether it was a PM or a review on Amazon for Stalkers. Uh, and this a, is the first book in the It was the, the first series. one. A lady uh, introduced herself to me as a detective sergeant in London. And she said, can I just ask, is Mark Heckenberg, who's Heck, is based on any, on, on any coppers in real life? And if so, can I meet him? <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Which I thought, well, I obviously hit the, hit the mark with that one. Absolutely. Um, so uh, it had to be a sort of um, a grubby, realistic story, but also with some excitement in there. Mm. And one of the reasons I created the National Crime Group this was before the National Crime Agency existed, by the way. Right. So I always say they got the idea from me. Mm -hmm. I wanted, um, I mean, I'm sure they would dispute that. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I wanted to tell some action-packed stories. So it needed to be the length of the country. It couldn't just be, you know, in Manchester or yeah. in London or whatever. Well, it starts in London, ends up in Salford. Ends up in Salford. And we, I mean, yeah. the books, the idea being all the heck books, they're all in different parts of the country. Yeah. I mean, you travel around a lot. Yeah. Can I ask you about the, how you pitched the book to get it published then? Because writing for the bill, writing for doing other bits of scripts is one thing for TV. Yeah. But crime fiction and having a book published is completely different. Well, so first, of all, first, first of all, crime fiction in particular is a very saturated market. Mm. There's an awful lot out there, as you know. Don't and at the moment, anyone can be a publisher. They can self-publish on Amazon. Well, you can self-publish. You couldn't, you, you couldn't really then. Mm. Then, it, I mean, the heck... So I this was, was 2013? 2013. Yeah. I mean, you probably could, but there were, there were phrases used then that are not used now, like vanity publishing. It, so there was a kind of... It was like a pejorative term mm. to describe people who self-published. Now, the only concern I would... I would never recommend self-publishing simply because the marketing of a book is so expensive. Mm. And this is what the mainstream publishers, that's, that's the cost they carry. A lot of people think, well, I can publish a nice book, and you can, and you can pay a great artist to do a lovely cover, and you can pay a proofreader and all this, even pay an editor. But who's going to market it for you? Mm. You know, who's going to get out there into all, to all the magazines and radio stations? Mm. That's, the, that's the unseen expense mm. of publishing. But publishing crime, so the point I'm make, getting around to making is that, you know, even with my TV uh, credentials, which were not hugely extensive, but they were real, mm -hmm. I had to write the book, basically, before anyone would take a chance. Uh, now, well, whether I had to or not, I don't know, but I did. I wrote Stalkers very quickly. I can write quickly when I want to. It usually takes me about two to three months. And it was in a raw form. And I sent it to my agent, who really liked it. It did what I said, though he objected to some of the violence in it. Now, I, I kind of, we were really on, a, on different song sheets there. For me, uh, I write what I, I like to think of as urban thrillers rather than police procedurals. Right, yeah. I, my, my heck, as you have gleaned, is not above bending the rules. And I wanted to do a lot of that. Mm. I wanted to fight the criminals on their own terms. And so my agent was a little bit uneasy with that. But I thought, look, I want this character to be different from all the others. You know, this has to be someone who doesn't play by the rules. And that's how he gets them. You know, he, untouchable criminals are going to be taken down by this guy. So we went with it. But as I say, it was a lengthy process because I had to write the whole book. Now, anyone who's new to the game is going to have to do that. Mm. Because it's not just showing that what you can do over three or four chapters. If they don't know you from Adam, they won't know that you can maintain it for the full 100,000 mm. words. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, uh, when you've got a couple of books out, then it's a different story. Yeah. 
you've, you need to establish yourself. Yeah, first. I mean, you've got. I, 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 and if you're with a, a particular publisher who trusts you, you can get to the stage where you can get up, you can be commissioned just from a discussion, discussing an idea. Yeah, go away. That's yeah, a great idea. Go, go, go and write, write it. it. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. and all the paperwork will follow. You know. So, um, but you do have to force your way in through the door by mm. doing the heavy work. How much of your police experience came into? Well, what I'm, yeah. I, I, funnily enough, I get asked this a lot, and it's always a difficult question to answer because you don't want to for people to think that you were a lesser being than mm. Heck. But let's be honest: there's no way I was as good a detective as Heck. It's not in any way autobiographical. I mean, someone once asked me that, and I thought, "Are you insane? Mm. <laughs> Do you really think this happened <laughs> to someone?" And I'd be walking the streets now, you know, yeah. uh, without uh, being treated for a uh, mental breakdown. Um, <laughs> But uh, the thing that gives you, the thing you, the experience of being a copper gives you if you're going to write about coppers is you understand the, the tone of what it's like in police stations and incident rooms. You understand the way they talk to each other. You understand the kind of the, ex- the physical and mental exhaustion of endless surveillance that leads to nothing. Mm. And then the boss comes in and you think, oh. God Almighty! What does what does she want? No, all I mean, no doubt this exists in other workplaces. Absolutely but, does. But, yeah. But in this one, the stakes are high. Yeah. So the pressure to to catch uh, a series of you know murderer or murderers who are perpetrating a series of murders is immense mm. on the officers involved. I mean, they they literally do. It's night and day, mm. and it can be months and months and months. It can be years even. Mm. Uh, and you, this pressure to crack a case from everybody, the pol- politicians and the press and mm. the people who gather outside the police station shouting abuse and all this kind of thing. Mm. So all that stuff I wanted to be there. I, I tried to create, um, with Heck, I like the idea of a lone wolf investigator. Now, that in itself may seem like a bit of a cliche these days, but I don't, when I say lone wolf, I'm not talking Rambo mm. or even Jack Reacher. Mm. You know, this isn't a guy who can knock six men down with a single punch. Mm. It's nothing like that. I mean, he's a rough customer, but it's nothing like that. But wants to get to the bottom of what's yeah, he was Yeah, he's an investigator, so, yeah. and he put and his main, his doggedness is his, is his key. Yeah. And his ability and his energy to keep moving, to travel, to pursue leads at any cost. Yeah. Um, even to follow leads that his superiors think are not leads, mm. though they also of, often trust him. Yeah. Some of the, so all these things are things I picked up, not just from my own experience, but from other coppers I worked with. I knew a detective sergeant who would never let anything go, mm. who, who was driven. He reeled off a list of criminals in Manchester, in Salford, who were serious criminals. And he, and he, he told me, I, I, I will not rest till I've put all of this lot in prison. Mm. And um, he was that was his motivation. So that's very much the heck yeah. thing. So I grabbed it from colleagues as much as from myself. Right. You know, it's interesting because there's a, a there's a scene in that in Stalkers that you mentioned earlier about uh, being in a tower block in Salford, and there, there is a scene in a tower block in Salford. That, again, I won't go into the the details. The horror, of it, the horror. That's a horrifying I, scene. I could it? smell the tower block in your yeah. writing. Yeah, well, I've been in a lot of them, and I I I found this. I want one thing I always want to do with the heck books and all my cop books really is put my readers there mm. because those shooting galleries that became the squats for drug addicts and alcoholics and all kinds of other debris of society. Mm. You know, they really exist. Most mm. people will never go into them. No, and they still do. Uh, yeah, and I, I would go into them all the time, and sometimes in plain clothes, sometimes in uniform. And, 
it was the, yeah the smell the look the feel the terrible sense of desolation and that this is the end of the road for mm. so many people I, I want people to I want my readers to feel that I want them to feel that why am I just am I being cruel to my readers well you know it no, goes that, back to being told that we don't want to sugarcoat this absolutely. I love I love watching Village Green murder mysteries big country house and all you know rural England and all this but the real crime isn't there. Yeah, Midsummer. Midsummer yeah. has the worst kill rate. It has in the, the worst the kill country, rate, but it, it? <laughs> it has the worst. It has the worst murder rate, but it's by far the cutest environment. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I I, 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 I wanted to put Heck in. I mean, sometimes in the Heck books, he does go into the countryside, mm-hmm. but in, for the most part, it, I wanted it to be the urban experience, yeah. and it's it's the underbelly of the urban experience. But you, your writing really brings that to life in terms of the location. And, you know, you almost anticipate the, the fear that going into it, what's going to be over the next page is what I found. It well, is well, I did. There was, one thing, there was one thing I remember use, I, I, I used that was di- a direct lift from a real-life experience. When I went into a series of derelict tower blocks in Salford, we were pursuing a suspect, and it was a rabbit warren of dereliction. Mm. And this, we were there for most of the shift trying to find this guy. And um, I remember walking down one corridor and turning a corner and written, there was graffiti everywhere, mm. but sprayed on the wall was, all we have to sell is fear. And I thought, and that, I thought, that, that's going in the book. <laughs> yeah. That, and, I, and I remember thinking that was a sort of such a chilling thing. That's good to you know. know. So that's a direct lift from real life experience. Fantastic. That. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the other work that you do because it's not all crime fiction. There's sort of medieval stuff. Yes, the new my new book, um, Usurper, is uh, Merry England, which, in my inevitable way, is not was not quite so merry. <laughs> where, do, where did the ideas from that come from? Then? That's a throwback to my earliest childhood. Really, my my dad was um, a great storyteller, and when I was a baby, I suppose very very young he would always tell me a story when I was put to bed and they would often be stories from mythology mm. did he make them up or no no well some he did but yeah. most um, were stories so um, you know they'd be Jason and the Argonauts yeah. and the Hercules and Theseus and the Minotaur and Perseus and the Gorgon and all heroes versus monster stories but my far my favourite was Beowulf Right. And um, it's one of my earliest memories, my dad telling me the story of Beowulf and Grendel. I, I, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's no doubt some psychology going on here, because because <laughs> because Grendel was like the archetypal serial killer, you know, who was mm. who went initially to be to make friends and was rejected, and so if he couldn't have their friendship, he'd have their fear, and rejoiced in the carnage he caused, but was eventually brought down. Um, but I, the fact the, the whole um, of that the age of the Vikings. Mm. was brought to life for me by my dad telling me this story and I love the idea of the long haul and the warriors feasting and they're outside the frozen wilderness and the dark forest it really had a magical effect on me like the way fairy tales do on other people and uh, so I I read widely within that field as a youngster and of course it was not just Beowulf it was the Knights of the Round Table Mm -hmm. and then other uh, other works of historical fiction Henry Treese was a was an author around that time who wrote Man with a Sword, which was about Henry with the Wake, and The Last of the Vikings, which was about Harold Hardrada, or Viking Dawn was about I think the discovery of um, the Vikings travelling to North America and all these kind of things, these adventurous, rip roaring sagas. Mm. 
about an age when really there were no complexities in law. It was good and evil. Yeah. And the, yes, yeah. and it was a while. The countryside, the the, the countryside was wilderness, mm. and there were bears and wolves, and you know mm. all this kind of thing. And um, I guess my interest in history is right across from modern history, right back to the distant past. But because of that, I have a particular affection for the sort of pre-mechanized era, you know, the feudal age. Mm-hmm. And um, as I've grown older and delved into more sophisticated fiction, you know, the works of Shakespeare, for example, you know, the histories. Mm-hmm. You then start to understand the political complexities behind these adventurous stories, and that makes it even more interesting to an adult. And um, and of course, a lot of modern authors weave romance into them as well. I always have an undercurrent of romance. I think if I can find it, I always, I always find an emotional tug yeah. helps helps get your readers interested as well. Yeah, because um, it's relationships, it's people, isn't it? Will we'll, you yeah, focus people, on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, without without, it's it's, it's like anything. It's like I, I mean, uh, I, I've forgotten who it was who said, you know, that um, he would never take a photograph of a beautiful landscape seriously unless there was people in it. It's people who the focal point is always people. Now that's a that's a subjective. That's mm-hmm. a matter of opinion. Yeah, but but I think that I think that you know all stories are ultimately about people. Mm whatever they are mm-hmm. and uh some are very simplistic some but i think i tend to think we most of us like to you know we all know we're, we're complicated creatures and that's what we're familiar with mm. um but life then so so you put a person who has emotions and he's up can be upset and can be angered and can fall in love just like we can and put them in a tumultuous age mm. where the law was paper thin i mean often the law makers were the law breakers you know an age yeah. of robber barons and brigands and um all this kind of thing and you have to find somewhere in that you have to find goodness and hope yeah. and that's a that's an epic story in itself so um usurper is the first of two novels set during the northern conquest of england which was you know, one of the most terrible experiences this country ever experienced, ever had, really. I mean, it might, may have led on to greater things at the time, but it seemed that Armageddon to the mm. society that had existed before. Yeah. Which genre do you find easier to write? Well, I, I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ian. I, I'm a professional writer, so I have to cut my cloth in terms of the one that pays best. So the crime thrillers are, without doubt, the most lucrative thing I work, I do. But I like writing ghost stories. I've written hundreds of ghost stories. I had hundreds of ghost stories published in anthologies and magazines and ghost and horror stories. The money is is inconsequential, really. Um, it's so small for short stories that you just do it because you like doing it. But I, but I mean the, the 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 historical novels are the professionally published historical novels are a relatively new thing for me. It's an area I've only, I've only, I only actually moved into during COVID when I found I had some free time. Okay. They sit at a midway point between the two thus far in my experience. I'm sure that there's, there's every possibility I could get a bestseller from a, a historical novel, but I've not done yet. Mm. So yet. Uh, it's still, it's still, um, it's still a work in progress. Though. Yeah. Yet being the key word. Yeah. I am doubtlessly got some listeners who are thinking they're being fired up by your story, thinking that writing, and they want to now go and write the book. They might be might be made redundant. They might be in a situation where they just want to have a go at it. What advice would you give somebody? Well, I mean, without wanting to sound too trite, you just have to write. Now, what I mean by that is, but write in a disciplined way. Pick what you want to do. 
So don't fire your gun everywhere. You know, focus on something that you know about that you think you have a that you have a strong interest in. Because if you're interested in it, mm-hmm. the chances are other people will be interested in it. So if you're an ex-copper, for example. No, you don't have to write cop stuff because you might be sick to the back teeth of it. But most of the ex-cops I know who write, write cop stuff. <laughs> That's a whole bunch of us get together in Harrogate. We all write cop <laughs> stuff. Um, I mean, because it's, it's familiarity, you see, and, you all, and you're giving yourself an advantage mm-hmm. because this is about getting writing something that you want people to pay for. So you, you want to give yourself as many advantages as you can. But if, you, if that's not your thing, if what you're really interested in is ghost stories in Victorian England, then do that. Mm. I mean, I, I would suggest that, you know, don't take half a year researching. Write. Write it. If you need to do some research, leave gaps, but get it down. Because I always think that once I've broken the first draft, I've broken the back of the job. You've got it on paper. It's a different game then. It's there. It exists. It's real. Mm. And I, you know, even if you have to do loads of rewriting, I'll give you an example of how I how I get a book underway. Mm. I dictate my first draft. I get a dictaphone, and I take my dogs for a walk for hours. So I've got the fittest Springer Spaniels in Standish, even though they're now twelve. <laughs> and I just dictate as you walk in the as dogs. I'm walking, and it is literally a case of. It's like, I don't know if we mentioned this before, it's like the famous Jack Kerouac thing where he said, just write as it comes out and rewrite it later because you're getting it down. Mm. And, and you know, you can do all the refinements you want. Mm. I mean, I don't have an app that then types it up. I type it up myself and I, make, I do a lot of rejigging while I'm doing that. Mm. So you're not, not working, you are working. But once you've got the first draft down, then you've got a book. Now, it's not going to be in a fit state to show anyone. Mm. Your second draft is where you write it. Right. That's the one you really start to close things down. And and I always find with the second draft, I mean, I play mood music on my second draft because I, I and it's always a, cho- a chosen playlist that's relevant to the subject matter. Right. So for Usurper, I would have a whole long um, playlist of medieval music and f- film music that's from that era so you sort of put in your subconscious yes in it's in the background time. it's not loud it's yeah. in the background yeah. and it, it works for me it wouldn't work for everybody mm-hmm. um everyone has to find their own way ultimately but i mean i find that once i've got the first draft down i feel i'm halfway there right and and uh, so i would suggest you do i would suggest that but sometimes if you've never written before you know you have to write properly you have to write coherently mm. So it might be, I mean, there are short story markets. Short stories are a great way of honing your craft. Short story, I mean, in the age of the internet, there are loads of sites who publish short stories, online magazines and such. And what do you define as a short story in word count-wise? Well, it can be, I mean, some, some, well, there's flash fiction, which is like 100 words. I mean, that's an art form in itself. Mm. That's not going to tell people much about you, though. Mm. Most short stories, I would say, you're looking at around from around three thousand words to around seven thousand words. I mean, there are longer. There are longer. There are what they refer to as novelettes, which are sort of up to fifteen, twenty thousand words. And there are novellas, which can be up to forty thousand words. I mean, I've, I've done them all. Mm. I mean, there are different markets. Uh, some will pay, some won't. When you start out, don't turn your nose up at the ones that won't. Yeah, they're cheap skates, but they could get you exposure. Mm. The most important thing, though, about writing for somebody else rather than yourself is 
you can take lessons. So always learn from your rejections. We all get rejections. I get rejections now. Mm. I mean, the fact is, we could wallpaper a living room with our rejection slips. Everyone says that. The, the, the important thing is, you can learn. If you learn from your, your rejections, you'll be a much better writer. If something keeps getting knocked back by an editor or a producer or broadcaster or a publisher, and they all tell you the same thing, the chances are they're right. Mm. You're not doing yourself any favours by not at least considering that whatever it is you're doing wrong, fix it. Well, they should know their market. Well, they do tend to know the market. Some don't bother to tell you why they don't like it. And that's a pain. But there's nothing you can do about that. But the ones... If, 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 if an editor... If a book editor takes the trouble, or a magazine editor, to tell you why he, is, he or she has rejected your work, listen to what they say. Yeah. Because that could be the difference between your next submission getting rejected again or being bought. Mm. You know, so uh, it's very important to make your rejections work for you. It's a process. Yeah. So it's like any craft. You've got to work and you learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. What does a working day look like for you? So a typical working day. Um, well, I mean, I, uh, well, I, I don't think there's any such thing for me really. But I, I mean, I tend not to do nine till five or Monday to Friday. I work all week, and sometimes I'll work, I'll work on a, all day Saturday and maybe take a couple of afternoons off during the week. What I tend to do is, I mean, that'll, that'll be afternoons off to run errands. Hmm. Um, you know, not to get my feet up. I, I try not to do that. Um, I, it depends, really. If I'm if I'm on a contract for a book to be delivered within a certain time frame, it's got to be that. So I do what I've more or less what I've said. My first chap, every chapter, I dict, I go and dictate it. So my dogs get their walks, and I get the work, and I, I type it up usually in the afternoon. And that way, I find if I can do a chapter a day, sometimes I miss that. It's not always a chapter a day. If I can do a chapter a day, I've got a first draft within. Sometimes as sometimes a month and a half, sometimes two months, sometimes three. Mm. But you know, when you're writing to deadlines, mm. you can't afford to take all year. And most professional publishers impose deadlines mm. because they have to get the ball rolling. Yeah, they can't just publish it when you're ready. Um, so I, I, that's my working. That I'm, if, if I'm between contracts, well, it's all about looking for them. Mm. So I will sometimes do speculative work if I think so. For example, with Usurper, because I hadn't been published in the historical novel genre before, I thought I should knock about 40,000 words out, which I did. Mm-hmm. I gave them 40,000 words. That was thankfully enough to sell the book to the publisher. And then you carried on with it. Then I just carried on with it. Then Only then I was under contract. So, um, And then, yes, I still get asked to do short stories, which I do. You know, I will fit those in when I can. Mm-hmm. Um, I love writing short stories, usually hot ghost or horror stories. Um, I do a lot of crime short stories as well, though. So I only accept those commissions if I I know I'm going to have time to do them. I've not always got time, so sometimes I have to reluctantly say no. But, yeah, so in the morning it will often be uh, out and about we go, me dictating, and in the afternoon I type it all up. Now, sometimes I've not got a full chapter. Sometimes I'll run into the evening to do it. Um, I'd rather not do that, though. Mm. Um, But it's all about the time, how much time you've got. Yeah. Um, and editing as well, you know. Sometimes, when, when, if I'm on the second draft, it's a case of get the mood music on, work my way through what I've got, and rewrite it and refine it and smooth it out and turn it into a nice piece of work. Okay. What does the future hold for you? Well, I mean, more of the same. I hope. 
Um, I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of a, a contract to write four historical novels at the moment, so I've I've written two. I've started I started today on my third, but I've got a couple of crime novels which I'm looking to perhaps do to do a little bit more work on, and then I'll push out. Mm-hmm. I've I've been pitching new crime ideas. I think I always think when you get a really good idea, you should hammer while the iron's hot if you can. Mm. So I've I clock I have a catalogue as thick as um, a file as thick as a phone book of ideas right. um, I always every time I get an idea I write it down some are uh, turned out to be complete no hopers but others hit, you know suddenly something happens that's certainly what happened with stalkers you know the idea was already there yeah um, and, that, and look at look at how that paid off mm. so never throw any ideas away um, if I am looking to pitch I often have ideas days where either either bounce ideas around with Kath or with my agent, mm-hmm. Kate, um, at Blake Friedman. So uh, this, this sounds very this sounds very um, intense and like I'm some kind of workaholic. But I always think, certainly within work time at least, everything I do must be in some way geared towards pushing the career. If you know what I mean. Yeah. So. Yeah. Even if it's even if I'm chatting with someone, we often talk shop. You know, if I'm chatting online with a fellow writer or mm-hmm. editor, we often talk shop. I mean, I don't mean to say you have to do that, mm. but I enjoy it. You know, I'm one of these very, very, very few, very fortunate people who absolutely loves what he does for a living. So I can I can live it I can I can live it and breathe it all the time, and it doesn't wear me down. <laughs> That's a big thing that's always come across in the people I talk to is that it's a passion, oh, and yeah. you know that yeah. there is it's just something that lives with you all the time. Well, I don't think I don't think you can I don't think you can do, because it, it, like any as I say like any craft it requires so much work that I don't think it could be anything else. Mm. I don't think you could there'll be any purpose in following it because the rewards for the majority of people who write are thin on the ground and I know a lot of writers who are very 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 good and haven't got anywhere in their careers and it's, it's heartbreakingly sad you know that you think they're they're they've not they're not known by the wider world and they should be mm. and they've just somehow slipped through the net and that can happen that happens absolutely I mean writers who are you know I mean people who come come in who come in very grandly and noisily and do a couple of books and then disappear again that's probably because they want to do something else. They, they're people who maybe move around a bit. That's fine. Mm. That's what, you know, they have a go and then they do something else. But I know people who would give their left arm to be right, professional writers and mm. just haven't. And they're good, but they haven't, had, they haven't been lucky, you know. They could only give their left arm if they were right handed. That's correct. I was about to say something <laughs> similar. Yeah, yeah. That's been a fantastic insight, Paul. Thanks ever so much for that. But one final question I ask all of my guests, and that's knowing what you know now what you've learned what one piece of advice would you give that teenage self right um don't do it (laughs) no that's a joke obviously um i would say what i say to people who always say is the one piece of advice you can give i think this would apply to anyone certainly to me when i was a kid it's a really long hard uphill road and you're going to fall lots and lots and lots of times but the only day you fail is the day you give up so it's all within your grasp it's just about how much you're prepared to take en route Paul Finch thank you very much thanks very much Ian
I'm sure you'll agree that the two episodes have provided a superb insight, not only into the creative approach of a best-selling professional writer, but also how the journey from full-time employment to self-employment in the creative arts is by no means easy. I've read many of Paul's thrillers, especially the Heckenberg or Heck series as it's known. And what I love about them is that you can clearly picture yourself in the locations and the scenarios. Some of the storylines, though, are not for the faint-hearted, but, as Paul outlined, many of the incidents are based on his own experience and those of his ex-colleagues. I've never really been a fan of historical fiction, but I bought a copy of Usurper after having recorded the interview. I'm halfway through it as I record this, and I think Paul may have changed my mind on the genre. The storyline's very much about the people involved in the relationships. The historical backdrop and the locations are very much a setting for those relationship outcomes. I'm not being paid to say this, but if you're looking for some exciting stories, especially book three of the Hex series, which was a brilliant roller coaster of a read, then please do give Paul's work a try. My thanks to Paul for his time and mentorship over the last two episodes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please follow the series wherever you get your pods and do review the back catalogue if you're new to the series. You can leave feedback about the episode through social media by searching for Half Hour Mentor or via the email link that you can find in the show notes to this series. I'd love to know what you think of these episodes, so please do get in touch and leave a review. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, bye for now. Thank you.